Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. For today's episode, I have the honor of being able to introduce Mr. Leslie Bernard-Joseph, the CEO of Coney Island Prep. Welcome, Leslie. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So those of you that are joining us right now may be wondering, who is Leslie Bernard-Joseph? Well, currently he is the CEO of Coney Island Preparatory Schools located in Brooklyn, New York. It is a school district that currently has about 1,100 students, soon to be 1,500. When do you expect that growth to be accomplished? Uh, Over the next couple of years, so I would say three to five years. But 1,500 is a long ways growth from when you began as a founding dean of the school with 95th graders. Yeah, we were a very humble one hallway school. with three classrooms of kids. So we've definitely come a long way to four schools now. And I cannot wait to talk about all the ways in which you have come a long way because I know there are many. But before I do, I want to give a few more pieces of of background about you, Leslie Bernard. You are a Brooklynite yourself, born there, but raised in Queens. Mm -hmm. You went to public school for much of your life, but wound up transitioning to a private boarding school in Massachusetts, and eventually wound up at Princeton, where you studied politics and African-American studies, went on to Stanford, where you collected two more degrees, a master's in education and a law degree. And you did a few stints in a couple places after you gathered those degrees, but ultimately, you've now wound up back where you began, the roots at Coney Island Prep, and now you are leading the entire network as the CEO. So how it's been crazy. It's been a crazy ride. That's I've known you this entire time, like full transparency. I've known you since before the colonial prep days when you were at a public school in 2008, 2006 in the Bronx. Sorry, 2006, 2007, 2008. We go way back. Yeah. Right. This is a long road in education. So can you, can you tell our guests here, how did you wind up here? Like how did education become the journey that you've taken? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks again for having me, Haley. It's, it's really a privilege to be here and uh, going back with you 15 years feels like a short amount of time. Like I definitely don't feel that old. So I guess I would say that like for so many people in education, this work is personal for me. Uh, I grew up in a single parent immigrant household, both, both uh, my mom and my dad are from Haiti, but I grew up with my mom, raised by my mom and two aunts, some first generation American. And I, my mother had me zigzagging across the district in Queens trying to find the best schools for me. So I grew up in a district that was 99% Black. By the time I was in third grade, I was in my third public school. By the time I was in fifth grade, I was getting bussed out of the district to a district that was predominantly white and Asian. Um, So at a really young age for me, I just sort of intuitively or implicitly understood that like, if you wanted an opportunity, then you sort of had to leave home for it. And that's what my schooling experience was like. Transitioning from, you know, long walks and bus rides out of the district to a public school that was an hour away from middle school. I ended up with a scholarship to attend private boarding school in Massachusetts. And that was certainly culture shock. It it was 
it was an expensive, like tens of thousands of dollars tuition to school. And I was not from there. I'd never seen so much grass. But I think, again, for me, it just sort of crystallized this idea that uh, you don't have to only leave home for opportunity, but this education game and journey in America is really sort of built on luck. I think the trajectory of me from New York City Public Schools to Deerfield Academy to Princeton to Stanford, I never felt like I was the smartest kid in my class. I was never the hardest working. I was just lucky enough to have the mom that I had, to have the aunts that I had to push me on my journey. And so I studied politics and African-American studies in college, and I got tired of reading about all the problems I saw in this country, and I wanted to do something about it. And I felt like in teaching in my classroom, in my four walls, I could do something to remake this country as it should be. And that's how it started for me. That's how I met you at Teach for America. That's how I ended up in education. Uh, the story changes a little bit in terms of why I stayed. But I think for me, it just starts first and foremost with this experience of challenges and poverty and struggle and knowing that things weren't fair and wanting to do something about it. And having been lucky enough to have the privilege to do something about it, but being surrounded by people who sort of expected to be in these places. And, and I just knew intuitively something was wrong with our education system. And I think that point you're naming here about your intuitive realization is actually a profound one, in part because sometimes as adults, I think we forget that kids know what's going on. It doesn't fly over their heads. You know, mm -hmm. children are smart and they make connections. And so I bet you are not alone in the realization and the understanding of educational inequity in America specifically, right? That's the system that we're kind of grown within and, and growing within. I think children understand just like yourself, even at very young ages, why some parents are, are doing what your mother did and busing them around the city and forcing opportunities that weren't within their zip code perhaps that they were born into. 100%. It gives children not enough credit when we assume that they don't get it. So I just, I think the point you're making is a, is a really big one. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll come up again. It's something I firmly believe. Yeah. So, you know, you've been in education for 15 years, but you've already described, especially given the way that you've studied over your time in college and beyond. I'm wondering how you think that education has changed since you actually became a professional educator 15 years ago. Yeah, it's a great question. So to answer that question, I think it helps to paint a picture of when I started teaching. So I started teaching in the mid-aughts. This is, you know, the heyday of Mayor Bloomberg's administration. Um, it's after his first term, but before, you know, the second and third. Joe Klein is chancellor of New York City Public Schools, uh, an esteemed attorney and uh, litigator, but not necessarily a teacher and an educator. This is a few years before President Obama would win his first term, launch race to the top. And it also coincides with, uh, I guess, what I would call the boom years in charter school movement in New York City and other cities across the country, like uh, New Orleans in particular stands out. I started teaching in uh, a district public school. At the time, it was one of the largest in the city, over 1,500 kids, K through five, in a massive building in the Bronx of Grand Concourse and another trailer in the schoolyard. There were... 10 fifth grade classrooms on my hallway. And of the 10 classroom teachers, six of us were Teach for America core members in our first or second year. So this is my experience, I think, coming into public education, sort of personally and in New York City. 
back then the rhetoric and approach to education was for good and for bad, making a pivot to business principles and philanthropic frameworks and theories on management to outcomes and measurable results. I think the phrase or core value Teach for America when we joined was this idea of like relentless pursuit of results. RPR, yes, I remember uh, it well. And so that, that was the idea that outcomes for students and school performance in particular, they matter tremendously. And those outcomes should and were always measurable and usually in the form of test scores. So I think that was one thing that was true uh, when I started 15 years ago. I've seen, in terms of like what's changed over the past 15 years or what have I seen, I've seen two big shifts that I'd say I, I agree with when I started teaching and since I've started teaching, and then I'd say there are two other shifts that I'm wary of. The first shift is around a focus on equity. I don't think that that was language that we used in 2006. And to me, equity is a clarification on whom those outcomes are meant for. Um, and the idea that those outcomes mean nothing if we're not clear about eradicating opportunity gaps across lines of difference, including race, income, IEP and special needs status. But equity also implied to the reallocation of resources to support kids who need them more. So I think that emphasis gives us a different language to talk about what schools are supposed to do and how we should support schools, but also what the public should expect of schools, um, how we should hold our leaders leaders accountable and politicians accountable in terms of supporting schools. So I agree with that. I like to focus on equity. I think we're overdoing it, however, in terms of how we speak about it, and I think we've lost the core of what it means. The second big shift that I agree with that is a recognition in the role that educators of color play in leading high-performing schools come from this recognition that you know schools belong to communities. And if they are going to be led by people who care about those communities is what Brian Stevenson says, you know, the people who are most proximate to the harm are also most, most proximate to the solution, and they're most deeply vested in finding the answer to solving those problems. So this recognition that educators of color matter has been a shift that wasn't true when I started in 2006. And I think you've seen the pivot in lots of different areas and arenas. And so I think it's, it's a step in the right direction, for sure. So I'm proud of that. I think as... I'd say as the pendulum is sprung, um, your point about student voice and parent voice resonates. We've largely sort of left parents and kids out of the equation as we've further professionalized and further pivoted toward business principles. Teaching has become more complex. And so the way that we talk about outcomes, the way we talk about equity and what matters for kids is not always grounded in what parents say and what kids say. And I think we are certainly going to lose this generation we're going to repeat sort of the steps of the past in terms of schools failing or repeating harm if we don't listen to kids. And I'd say the last shift that I'm worried of is on everybody's mind right now is today's talent market. It is frightening out there. Some of this is because we failed to make teaching as sexy of a profession as it was 15 years ago. We've created lots of different pathways into the profession, but we haven't made them sustainable pathways and we haven't sort of answered the question around attrition for folks who entered the profession within the first five years. And I would say we're late to having an answer on what teaching should look like in a digital age. We're late to having an answer on how we correct schools of education to change, not just for theory, but for practice, particularly in the places that see the highest teacher turnover and have the lowest salaries. In a lot of ways, everything you've named here, unsurprisingly, I feel like they're connected, right? So 
this idea that the one that you just ended with, that, that teaching isn't as appealing, isn't as sexy as it used to be, or as it needs to be, is related to the other piece too about the role that educators of color need to play, should play in education for the benefit of the communities they serve. And then larger, as you get bigger picture about this, it's like schools need to be these community entities and we need to be valuing the people we're serving, right? At the end of the day, schools exist to serve families and children. They're not here to paint a larger political picture. And I think that that's what we've stepped away from personally as we look to this. So I, I do think that every single one of the, the kind of items you've named here as how it's changed are connected. Can you talk um, a little bit about how you see, uh, particularly the point about educators of colors being educators of color being in communities, as well as the relationship with how we've lost our sight on how we treat educators, compensate educators, revere educators are connected? Yeah, so I will, I guess I'll sort of use an, a, a different analogy. Think about big tech, for example. And I think you expected, anticipated, and love the convenience of this disruptive force that seem to put the customer first. It's all about like, I'm putting these resources at your fingertips and you get to do whatever you want with them and you get to control how you own, own in quotation marks, how you, at least you share content and how at least you deliver information to other people and share them with the people that you most want to connect with. And over time, I think we've become aware that this comes at a price and this comes at a cost and the focus has seemed to become more on profit advertising dollars and we recognize the harm that it's caused. I think the same is true and happening and has happened in education where there are lots of different aims and goals that we have around education, but first and foremost, it was supposed to be about kids and investing in the next generation. And empowering and preparing could have taken many different things. It could have been to become better citizens and learn what it means to be an American and successful. It could have been about creating opportunity where there was none, making sure that uh, America continued to be a land of opportunity. And then at times there was just the more calculated economic endeavor of you get an education so you could get a good job. I don't think that's uh, somewhere we lost that about what kids want and what kids need. And it has become about what do schools need to do to perform well and stay open? What are the test scores that kids are getting? How are you making sure that kids are enrolled? And I don't think that that is true of the reality for teachers in the classroom or kids or their families, but we've built so many constraints around what it makes on how it's possible to be a successful school that we've almost completely silenced kids and families from getting what they need and what they want, what they deserve. It's too, it's too hard to change curriculum in the moment. It's too hard to opt out of a test. It's too hard to actually stop what you're doing in the middle of the school day and say, you know, we're going to focus on just what you need right now. And Certainly this is all coming ahead because of COVID, right? I think the last right. 18 to 20 months have showed us, oh, this is completely broken and untenable and we, we can't change fast enough. And so we're at this bellwether moment where we know that what we have is not working for kids and families. We know that we were not prepared to take on the trauma that kids are experiencing in schools. We know that the systems that we have in the past aren't going to account for what the test scores were supposed to be. I say that in heavy quotations but we don't have the structures in place to change fast enough. I, I didn't answer part of your question. Like you also asked about leaders of color. And I think there's both an expectation and an understanding that when you are most connected to a challenge, then you experience it differently. And so, yeah, it isn't just a job for me. 
the kids in Coney Island live at the last subway stop in a community that seems so far from the privilege and opportunity of what people, when they think of the rest of New York City or when they think of Manhattan. And I know what that's like growing up in Queens. And there's this idea that like your community is forgotten. That in order for you to progress, like you have to leave the hood or you have to get away from where you're from. And that's not what I want for our kids and that's not what they want or expect for themselves. And so it's about, as a leader of color, it's about having that connection with my kids and for the first time being in a school community where there are lots of parents who are Haitian and speak Creole and being able to connect with them and that, that immigrant experience, it matters to me and it matters for our kids and it matters for our families. And there's a reason why when you think about Coney Island Prep and you think about the work that your team is doing and that you're leading there, there's a, there's a word that was left out of the narrative, that narrative as you describe the work, which was joy. And I think that there is a joy that your community is building, even during this really dark time of a pandemic that has emotionally, socially, financially ripped communities apart, um, that I think is so important to name, right? Because at the center of the work, and I remember one of the first things that we learned in Teach for America, one of the first things I was asked when I was hired after my first public school job was, can you bring joy and curiosity and love of learning into the field? Like continue to expand on what your colleagues are doing. And can you bring like that enthusiasm to the classroom and to the school? And to me, like understanding the pivotal role that you play, that your colleagues play, that your team plays, and also helping students be kids, kids be kids, is part of the equation of how we bring it back to the kids and their families and make this an experience that transformatively changes their own narrative, right? Their own story of how education impacted them. So can you talk a little bit about that and like what that looks like at your, in your community and what the vision is for how it feels in Coney Prep? Yeah. So this is actually one of my favorite weeks of the year when you're talking about joy. So we are headed into Halloween weekend and like nothing brings me more joy. Well, there are lots of things that bring me joy, but this is one of my favorite weeks of the year because I literally go full out costume, comic con style, like every year for Halloween and just show up in schools in ways that are absolutely ridiculous to our staff members. Like, I, why is this man walking around, excuse me, crawling around the hallway in spandex as Spider-Man? Like, this is just not normal. Um, but it's, it's dope, I think, for kids to see the leader of the school in that way and have high schoolers from years ago giving me the Wakanda salute from walking through their campus as Black Panther. So I'm, I'm excited this year to reveal my costume again. And I think that's part of what joy looks like at our school. For both teachers and kids, it is showing up authentically as who you are. It is classrooms that are decorated, not just in books, but in Marvel movie posters or in every ridiculous internet meme that you could find or with sports references, if that's what the teacher is about, whatever the teacher is about, like bring your whole self to the classroom because that is how you're going to connect with your kids and how your kids will understand that they are learning from an actual human being. But it also sort of unlocks, it gives kids permission that they may not have had in other spaces to be their whole selves. And so we talk about authenticity a lot at our school. We talk about joy a lot at our school. We talk about culture and race and equity and, and teach kids explicitly about what does it mean to code switch? What does it mean to manage 
who you think you are academically and personally with the different person that you might be at home. So I think joy looks like finding your own voice and living that authentically every single day. And for those of One you that cannot see what's over Leslie Bernard's shoulder, I'm believing there may be a mask from a previous that year's is, costume. That is, is that yes, that is, that is a Black okay. Panther helmet yeah. over my, I guess, left, no, right shoulder. There you go, right shoulder. <laughs> yeah, the other mask is, is somewhere in the room. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But, you know, if you want to see past Halloween costumes, just, you know, find me and I'm be happy to share pictures. They may or may not be available on the internet already. All right. So it's just a, a homework assignment for everybody listening. Yes. But I think there's, there's this thing that I need to name, right? Because prioritizing joy doesn't mean erasing trauma. It doesn't mean erasing the, the pieces you need about racial equity and financial disparities and all these really important concepts that, especially right now, where students, teachers, school leaders have been really slugging through 19 months of trauma after trauma after trauma. It's a both and. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit. You mentioned before that, that COVID is this bellwether moment. Let's talk a little bit about the social and emotional aspect of learning, joy, school-based uh, kind of creation and how that plays out in your vision for incredible schools. I'll start with our vision for kids, which is where we started and end with what we've learned over time. And I think what all schools are learning over time about our adults and our staff. I'm very much of the mindset of never letting a crisis go to waste. And so COVID created the opportunity for us to do things that I had wanted to do and believed in in the past. So there were some things that were we did out of necessity, which was we were a lot more responsive to parent and family needs. We were able to find and fundraise money for parents to give micro grants directly to get them through the pandemic and make sure that we we're financially taking care of our families. The bigger piece that we invested in is pivoting our schools, having a more trauma-informed lens. One of the challenges with being trauma-informed is that by nature of your work, educators care deeply about their kids and want them to be well. But like teaching, being trauma-informed does not mean that you are curing kids. It does not mean that you are giving them the answers. You have a better lens through which you can diagnose and recognize some issues that are coming up, but it's our job to prepare and equip kids with the tools to be the masters of their own future. So when you're asking about like, what does social emotional learning look like? What does trauma-informed practices look like? For us, it looks like school discipline policies and classroom management policies that recognize that kids are supposed to be kids and their responses come from a place. Are those responses developmentally appropriate? Cool, proceed as, correct the child's behavior if it is dangerous, point out where it is helpful or productive to who they wanna be, point out where it might be unproductive. Where a a kid's behavior response comes from a trauma-informed or comes from perhaps trauma, then I think the question comes, comes around, what are the skills and resources that you could use to help you cope with whatever issues that you're dealing with until you feel fully in control. That's really what schools are about in in some ways when it comes to social emotional learning. Unfortunately, there are lots of schools where adults are trying to assert power over kids to get compliance so that I can teach you and get you through the lesson. And kids are trying to get some power and control over their lives, their understanding and their academics. 
removing that power struggle means that like schools are just a place of play and joy and discovery. There's, I'm as a teacher now, I'm no longer trying to get my kids to sit down. I'm not trying to get them to do work and the kids are not trying to misbehave or trying to push back. It's, no, it's just, this is a place where we're just both trying to push boundaries and figure stuff out. And like that element of play, you just sort of expect it in those places. Like it's really clear in sports, like the boundaries and the rules are clear, but everybody now, even if you're in sort of like implicit competition, you are just trying to do the most fantastic, amazing thing possible in pursuit of this goal, which is winning points, whatever it is. And that's the element that we want to create in our schools. This is a playground for you to discover who you are. And that social emotional learning comes in discovery of like who you are individually, who you are in terms of your racial identity, who you are in terms of in respect to your community in respect to your friends. And how do you figure that out? How do you figure that out in this idea of like your past and what your future looks like? So our social emotional learning curriculum, it is actually a curriculum that we, we sort of wrote K through 12 and it incorporates elements of curriculums like teaching for tolerance, uh, caseal standards in terms of self-efficacy. But the thing that I, I love most about it is this idea of incorporating narrative elements of a hero's journey. So the hero's journey is the, the narrative storytelling arc of your hero uh, experiences a call to adventure that they at first resist, but then must go through with their friends. And their friends help them discover and unlock gifts until finally they reach the climactic moment in the story where through everything that they've learned over the course of this journey, they have to use their talents to get through some impossible challenge on their own. And they emerge out of this cave and this challenge, a different person, but called back home to leverage their gifts and their talents to do something incredible, amazing from their community. And you can see it in everywhere from every superhero tale to Harry Potter, to Lord of the Rings, to Star Wars, whatever it is. And it is just such a clear and powerful story for kids to tell that every single day we call you from home or you're being pushed out of your neighborhood or something is happening with your family and you're trying to figure out your place in the world and you will only figure it out with your friends but there is a part of your journey that is uniquely individual to you and so yeah the cave could be trauma the cave could be a challenge that you're facing in your community whatever it is that's how we want to teach and that's what we want to be at the center of our teaching and I'm so excited about this. And I think on a day-to-day, -day, I get frustrated because it is so hard for us to make this real in our school, in our classroom every single day. And where we're doing right and where, where it is amazing, you just feel it as soon as you walk in the room. And where we are struggling, uh, it's because trauma doesn't just impact kids. And the more that we inform and equip adults of with this language around trauma-informed practices, the more adults realize that they are also not okay. And it's really hard to pour everything that we have into our kids when adults themselves are struggling. And so what we've learned from COVID is that the adults are not okay. So that is sort of, it's challenging like how fast we can do the work. I'm gonna pause you for a second because there was a lot that you shared and I just need to name that watching you come alive as you talk about this hero's journey and how it lives and breathes as a viable way of thinking is inspiring. 
And I think that for the listeners that are joining us, they're probably thinking the same. And what I want to just name too is that I'm imagining where you see it living and breathing and viable, it's not a quiet school, right? Like I think people think of their childhoods and their schooling as quiet learning environments. And I would bet that you would say that's the opposite of what your school should be like at any given time. I, I mentioned never letting a crisis go to waste. COVID and social distancing meant that our, cl- our crowded classrooms and our desire to grow meant that we needed new space. So new space meant that we were lucky enough over the course of the pandemic to find a building. We had to renovate that property to get new furniture. And it was imperative for us to design classrooms that looked and felt different. If you Google 20th century classroom, right? You'll see 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, through the 90s. Rows and columns of desks that face forward as if it was the opening scene of The Simpsons. The only difference between the 20s and the 90s is that it's not all white men. Still the same number of kids in the classroom. Maybe they are all the same age now as opposed to the one-room schoolhouse. But the classroom is more diverse. The kids staring at the camera, they still don't have smiles on their faces. (laughs) And so... In our new building, our classrooms look bananas. Like the furniture, it's just weird shapes. The chairs are not all the same. We have stools that are impossible for you to balance on. And so you walk in and you just see a third grader like rocking back and forth (laughs) and like wobbling on a stool as if they're a buoy in an ocean. And it's like, yup, like this is just, it's weird. There are different spaces and it creates a sense of ownership, right? Like the classroom is built and designed for kids. It's colorful. There's stuff everywhere. There are things for you to touch, move, play with. And the configuration means that like, it is harder and challenging for adults. Now I think my favorite classrooms are the ones that I go into in which I don't hear a lot from teachers. Kids are busy talking. Teachers are doing very little. It's not that there is an instruction happening. It's that kids are in charge of the instruction. Like they are in charge of explaining. They're holding the marker at the whiteboard. They're touching the screen. And in the places where we are struggling, it feels like, kids are at their desks just on laptops or just listening to the teacher. It's not that those moments can't be useful, but I wonder how much are the kids owning the moment? And I think that's the challenge of what we're looking for, what we're trying to do. We're trying to create something that requires a lot less control for adults. And that's a lot harder. And it's coming at a moment when there's so little that's predictable and there's so little that we have control over our lives. And so to ask adults to take on that risk feels like a lot. Well, and first of all, I appreciate you painting that picture because I can see it in my head. I bet our, I bet our listeners can see it as well. And that's the kind of classroom I want my kids in, right? Like that, you think about that. You want your kids in a place that meets their needs, that sees them as individuals. Not having uniform seats means that students can choose for themselves the type of seat that best supports their learning. And when you talked originally about creating school environments for students and families, that is it. The latter part of what you're saying goes back to, again, I don't like to just talk about the positive because I could do that all day and I think you could too, but there's this real moment of burnout and crisis in all professions, but especially education, which the teachers have had to endure a significant amount of on-the-fly expectation changing over the past 19 months and I don't know of any educators who have come out unscathed. So how do you talk to teachers 
right now? Like, what does it sound like when you address your community to help buoy those that are feeling really challenged by what's before them? The immediate answer is we're still, I'm still figuring it out. Teachers need to hear that they are being put first in this moment and that they're being thought of and cared about. I'm still finding my voice and the right tone in that. Not because I don't care about teachers, but because I, I think kids first. And I have to remind myself that we don't have to do everything all at once. It's not possible for us to pour into and support our kids unless we take care of ourselves. So it's not to say that uh, I don't think about our staff. I think about them every single day. They, they are what keep me up at night. But I'm still very much finding my voice, thinking and making sure that it lands in the right way for teachers. Um, because everything that I just spoke about that I was excited and came alive about can sound really stressful to you right now. <laughs> and so yeah. what I communicate to my teachers and hoping to continue to communicate to them is that we are really trying to find and strike the right balance between immediate change that provides relief in this moment, that supports teachers and makes the job easier and more sustainable, and permanent shifts. The challenge that we face right now is that permanent shifts, if we want them to work for our kids, then it requires teacher voice and input, and it requires student voice and input, and it requires our family voice and input. And that process is democratic and messy and takes a really, really long time. And to the extent that you want change faster and you need it now, we can't do both. We can't remake the school as teachers want it, as kids want it, as families want it, without them being involved in the process. And asking them to be involved in the process is slower and asking more of their time. And so there's a little bit of patience that we're asking for. In terms of immediate shifts, um, it's both asking for permission and trust. We're gonna do everything that we can right away to make things better for you. It is not going to be everything that we could do because we've got to rely on you in that voice. So trust us that we're doing the best that we can and all that we can, but there's other stuff that you want that we believe in and we agree with you and it's coming. The process of getting there and making it sustainable is just it's harder and longer. And so if we want different systems, we got to change what those systems are. And that change means everything that you're used to is going to feel uncomfortable. And we're trying to balance like the discomfort that people can handle right now and that they want versus the things that are like, this is crazy and hectic. And so I think that's where we're really figuring out in terms of like communicating the right sort of care with our teachers. And if I'm being honest, we did a better job of it during COVID than we did now. During COVID, it was easy to say, we're putting your health and safety first, stay home. You need different tools and resources to teach from home. So you don't have to ask for an external monitor. We're shipping it to you because you need to be able to see all of your kids' faces on the screen and see all your lesson and navigating everything else. That felt like a no-brainer for us. And so those are the things that we had to invest in. You can't teach all day without ordering lunch. Like whatever we used to do in school, we had to ship it to people's homes. And that felt reasonable and fine and great. And people love that. COVID looks different in schools. And so that has shifted into... We want to meet every single one's individual needs to, we have to do what's right for the school as a whole. So telling people our schools operate best if we have everybody here every single day. And the only shot that we have of that is getting everyone vaccinated. So you have to get vaccinated. And if you didn't agree with that, it felt like we didn't care about the individual anymore. Or if we said you have to wear a mask, but you didn't agree with that, you, whatever the rules were, they were no longer individualized. 
So that communication of care got lost in translation. Burnout is real just because the entire country is recognizing that commuting long hours for not great pay, not being able to have childcare, not being paid enough if your city is unaffordable, not having the time to do things for yourself is exhausting. But there's also this principle of demoralization, which is I can't access all the benefits and things that I was supposed to for my job. And so the combination of burnout and demoralization meant people are leaving. I think you see it in our schools where things are going great. People are still tired and exhausted, but they're staying. Where there is a crack or an inkling of, we don't have it together operationally, they're chucking up two fingers and deuces and they're like, I'm out, I'm not, I will not wait for you to get it together. This needs to be predictable for me because the rest of my life is really hard. We have, as a school, as a network, a long way to communicating that same priority around making things right for teacher in every corner of every campus. There are places where we get it right and there are places where I want so much better for our people. And in absence of that, kids are suffering. So that's a lot of humility there, right? Like not every school leader would get up and have this moment of we're doing some of it well, but there's a long way for us to go. And this is something I'm constantly thinking about. So on behalf of like the people who you you support, I just, I want to say thank you for being humble there and just really sharing what's keeping you up at night and where the challenges are. I would imagine that school leaders all over the country and all over the world are feeling similarly to you. It is this impossible tightrope walk of health, safety, academic growth, social and emotional growth, uh, supporting the trauma of every stakeholder. It's enormous. The enormity of it is overwhelming in and of itself, just thinking about it. But living it every day is truly like a, 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 I don't know, what Sisyphean kind of, I don't even know if I'm saying uh, that so right. We're definitely pushing a boulder up an endless hill. Tight rope walk feels right. I would just imagine a tight rope run. It's just, we've been in a sprint since March, 2020 and folks are tired and exhausted and we realize we don't know when this is going to end. And even if it did end, the changes that we need to make aren't ending anytime soon. And so telling people that you had to buckle in for a long ride when they're exhausted feels crazy and untenable. But I don't know anything other than being honest with people. It's like, excuse my language for your listeners, but this shit is hard. Yeah. And it is not going to get easier anytime soon. But that's the only way we get to the other side. I feel like I need to take a deep breath because that level, yeah, that level of transparency and that level of pure unadulterated truth is the only way forward. We, I think, lied to ourselves a lot at the beginning of this thing and it's led to where we are today. And so the only way forward is that sort of truth and honesty. And, you know, I know we're nearing the end of our time together right now and I want to I want to ask you something that is slightly different than what I had intended to end with which is mm-hmm. the school leaders listening here are probably like ding check yep mhm ah yep what would you say to an educator though that's just starting out in their career right now October 2021 in the middle of what has been already a very challenging two years but how do they best support students, communities, colleagues, 
school leaders as energetic new teachers? I would say to a new teacher just starting out in the profession, I would say teach like you mean it. It's easy today to, education doesn't happen on Instagram, on TikTok, on tweets, or in short takes. It is long, grinding, invisible work in the classrooms with just you and your kids. And so the theory of like what should be true and what you want to be true is always, that practice is always gonna be different, but the work for how you get there happens every single day. And like that kind of commitment, it's required to be excellent in every single profession. So I would say teaching like you mean it is learning your craft inside and out, learning your content expertly so that you can then go forth and break every single rule in the book to create something beautiful. Like I'm a superhero guy. We've talked about superheroes. I'm also a sports person. Like to use a sports analogy, I would say, you look at a Steph Curry example. Like you have to learn the mechanics of shooting so well that you can almost never miss and then break every single rule about where you take shots from and how you move the ball and how many shots you take and what points you score. That's what teaching should look like with our kids. You don't teach your subject. You don't teach your content area. You don't teach for a test. Learn all of those things and then bend, break every single rule to make sure every single kid in your classroom gets what they need, right? Haley needs something different than Leslie. Tyrone needs something different than Jalen. Nadira needs something different than Yannick. Every single kid needs something different. Do whatever you can for them. Like that's what teaching like you mean it. So I want to end with what you shared here, which is you want, you want these teachers to learn everything, but then bend and break every rule. And I think that message is a perfect one for people that feel committed to change. Many of the topics, which I think we could go on for days talking about, but bend and break every rule. Leslie Bernard-Joseph, I, I just could listen to you share the stories of how you're making change in your community that you're serving, this, the ways that you've impacted people, many of whom I'm sure you don't even realize have felt touched by your brilliance um, forever. But I just want to say thank you to sharing, for sharing that with the folks who didn't already know you, who very soon will be hearing more and more about your transformative leadership. Thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, take care, everyone. Good luck. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.